Hello and welcome to this message from the river. We hope that this message from Pastor Billy Pate inspires and challenges you towards a greater relationship with Jesus Christ. Now let's join Pastor Billy Pate for another exciting message. I really appreciate Billy and April, you guys having us come, and, and what a great church building. You guys have got the most wonderful building to worship in, I'm telling you. This is, this is really, really wonderful. We, we travel a lot, and we've been in a lot of different churches, and, and you are blessed to have the pastors, number one, that you have. If you, don't, don't let them go unnoticed, okay? <laughs> yeah, you can pay me later. So... <laughs> I'm just kidding. Before I, I go any further, I want, I want to introduce some very special people to you this morning that I have with me. They don't always travel with me, but today, because it wasn't too far of a drive, I, I got them up early and brought them with me. But my wife here is the blonde on the, on the edge of the seat here. Her name is Katina. This November, we will have been married 20 years. Yeah. She is, she is the love of my life. I... I explain to people that what happened was is I tricked her before she knew what she was getting into, right? But, but then, you know, we were five years into it, and he, she just had to live with me. So, And then also our son is with us. He's uh, 17. He'll be 18 in July. And uh, he has uh, aspirations to join the Army. And so here in just a few months, he's going to be enlisting in the Army and following in Dad's footsteps. He wants to go and jump out of perfectly good airplanes. And so... Yeah, as long as the gear works, you're fine. It's when it doesn't, so you're not. So, so I was gl- I'm glad to have them with me this morning. Uh, it's good, good to be with you. I, I want to tell you just a little bit about me because I think it's important for you to know who's preaching you, to you this morning. It's just a little bit easier to receive, you know, and if I say something that doesn't sound churchy, you'll know why, okay, because I'm not very churchy. I'm just, I can't even fake it. I, I've tried and it just doesn't work, you know, I mean. Um, was, ra- was raised in a small town, a little town called Kellyville, right outside of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Very few people know where that is, or you've seen the sign if you've traveled on the turnpike. town of about 900 people at that time graduated with 36. I knew all of them by first name. I was the smartest kid in school. No, I'm kidding. I wasn't the smartest kid in school. But I, I did graduate with 36 people in a small town, and uh, so I- I'm kind of a small town guy that God has done extraordinary things with. I was not raised in church, had exposure to it as I was growing up a little bit, but never did really make a solid commitment for Jesus until I got older and I realized that the way that I was living was not pleasing to God. And my wife and I moved to, to Butte, Montana to take a job as a, in a, as a consultant in the communications industry. And at that moment in my life, I felt like that what it all, is all about men Listen to me here. What I thought it was all about was just making them money, right? The more money you make, the happier mama is, and everybody knows. If mama happy, everybody happy, right? And so uh, that's what I did. And so I'd get up in the morning, and I would go to work, and I'd come home. They'd be asleep when I, wo- when I went to work, and they'd be asleep when I'd come home. But I was bringing home the bacon. Baby, I'm telling you right now, we were making some good money. But what we weren't doing good at is our marriage, you know, because you can get distracted. And so uh, one thing led to another. We ended up separating. Depression came over me. 
to the place that I was going to end my life. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, one night in Butte, Montana, in the winter, 36 inches of snow on my, my front yard. That's some snow, brother, I'll tell you right now. People say they're going to move to the northwest to get away from it all. They don't know what they're saying. <laughs> you get away from it all when you go to north, the northwest. And so 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm walking up and down this hallway and had made the decision in my mind that I had lost my son, I'd lost my wife, and I'd lost everything that I thought was important to me because my priorities were off and put a 45 caliber pistol, Heckler and Kosh, up into the roof of my mouth and began to pull the trigger. And just at that moment... The Spirit of God moved into that big old house in Montana and spoke to my heart. And all I heard the Father say to me was, where have you been? You see, the Father will chase after you. No matter where you go, no matter what you think you're doing, God will come after you. I got in the car the next morning. You don't travel in the middle of the night through Montana. Your car will break down. You'll freeze to death. And so we waited. You know, I waited until the sun came up. And for the next few days, I drove all the way to Oklahoma, about 26 hours straight, found my wife. And for the next few days, it was a little rocky. I didn't tell her anything about that, that encounter that I had with God because I didn't want her just, you know, thinking I was going to pull the God card. Hey, look, you know, I'm saved and it's all going to be better kind of deal. And so... Next few days wasn't, uh, wasn't great, and she calls me one afternoon, and she says, hey, let's meet down at the park, and we need to talk, and we go down there, and we're sitting on the back of my, my Jeep, and I'm just crying, and she's crying. See, it was hard on us because she's my best friend, and I am her best friend, and we've been all over the world together, and, and so this was a hard, we didn't understand how we got to this place, and so, so through tears, my wife and I began to just try to figure out how to fix this, and I remember her saying words to me that changed my life and God became real to me, more real to me at that moment than he had ever been in my entire life. She just looked at me through tears running down her face and she said, this has all happened to us because Jesus is not in our life. You see, God was dealing with me and God was dealing with Katina at the same time. God can deal with all of you at the same time. (laughs) And thank God for it. So I called the only person I knew that knew Jesus, Grandma. Thank God for grandmas. Woo. Grandmas, listen, don't stop praying. I can remember coming home 3 o'clock in the morning, wasted, high, my grandma sitting in the living room with her Bible out praying for me. Thank God for praying, grandmas. It took me a little longer than some people because I'm hard-headed, but I called her and I said, hey, grandma, listen, we need to talk to a preacher. I'm we're in trouble here, but we need Jesus. And we went up. It was a Tuesday night. We went up to a little tiny church in Sepulpa, Oklahoma. The pastor just happened to be there. And I know I'm about five stories deep, but that's gonna, it's going to come back around in just a minute. pastor told me later he didn't even know why he went to the church. He went in his little small church that he didn't hold office hours. He went in and opened the door and kind of did one of those, why did I come up here? I can't even remember. And the phone rang. It was my grandma calling and said, my kids need to talk to you. We went up there. He counseled with us. And we came down to the front. This little tiny church, no lights on, just the, the light from the nursery was casting into the, to the sanctuary. And we knelt at an altar, me and that preacher and my wife, all three joined hands, and we gave our lives to Jesus that day, and we've served him every day since. Listen, I don't know where you're at today with Jesus, but I know where you can be. It doesn't matter how deep your sin has ever gone. His grace goes deeper. Every time. I'm telling you. So just, you know, like they say in the Bible, say la. You know what that means? 
Why don't you think about that? <laughs> Just think about that. So, my wife and I have had the opportunity to be youth pastors. We lived in Rwanda before three years, and then God called us home to pastor a church for four. We have just finished an assignment in the kingdom, pastoring a great church in Oklahoma City called High Point Church, and now God is calling us to go back to the mission field to work in evangelism. We have founded an organization called Advocates for Africa. We work in three primary areas. We work in evangelism, compassion, and education. Here's what that looks like. Evangelism. In Rwanda, there's 30 districts. So we identify people that have the evangelistic call on their life. We train them up and we give them transportation. How many of you know if you're an evangelist, that's kind of hard to walk and evangelize? You can do it, but it ain't no fun. (laughs) So we train them up and we give them transportation. The compassion side, there's two major refugee camps in Rwanda. We go into those refugee camps. We provide containers full of food, containers full of clothing, and any other thing that they need inside of that refugee camp. The last arm of our ministry is education. We desire to go out into remote villages where you've got generations of people who have no education, who are illiterate. Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, the kids, everybody, nobody can read. And so we go in and we build schools. The Rwanda government supplies the the teachers. And here's what we do because they let us because Rwanda is a little different. We're going to build these schools on the church property. Surprise. So when they come to school, they're also going to get a godly education. See, our ministry revolves around three things. It's the heart of God. What is the heart of God? If God could give you only one thing and one thing only, what would he have given you? Salvation. That's the evangelistic arm. It's the heart of God. But then what about the hand of God? We need to provide the hand of God, the compassionate hand of God to people, but we also need to give the word of God to people. People need to be able to be trained up and be literate and to be able to pick up their Bible and read it for themselves. And so we desire to work in evangelism, compassion, and education. Let's pray and I'm going to preach some. (laughs) Father, we love you and we thank you, Lord, for what all you've done in our lives. It's unspeakable, Father, the grace and the mercy that you have extended toward us. Lord, I thank you that no matter how bad we've ever sinned against you, that your grace is deeper. We love you and we thank you, Lord. We just ask that you would open our hearts this morning, teach us, convict us, encourage us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In the 38th chapter of Jeremiah, we find the prophet Jeremiah in trouble. And he's in trouble because he had been running his mouth in town about the king and about what was going on. And he told the people, look, if you'll just defect and go over to the Babylonians, then you'll be okay. But that was contradictory to what the king was telling them at the time. See, the king was telling them, look, just hang tight. We're all going to be good. They're like, we don't have any food. No, no, you'll be good. So Jeremiah was saying, if you don't go to the Babylonians, you're all going to be killed. And so they didn't like that about Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah chapter 38, starting with verse 4, it says, Then the officials said to the king, This man should be put out... Of the, I'm sorry, this man should be put to death. He is discouraging the soldiers who are left in this city as well as all the people by the things he is saying to them. This man is not seeking the good of the people, but their ruin. He is in your hands, King Zedekiah answered. The king can do nothing to oppose you. So they took Jeremiah and they put him into the cistern of Melchizedek, the king's son, which was in the courtyard of the guard. 
They lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern. It had no water in it, only mud. And Jeremiah sank down into the mud. This cistern or this well, you know, we, as I grew up in the country, as most of you maybe had, I was, I was raised knowing that if you find an old well, you don't get near it. You fall down in there and nobody will know that you're down in there. It's a dark place. It's a cold place. This cistern was a place where they had put Jeremiah so that he could just die quietly, where they could forget about him, where they could just ignore him, a place where Jeremiah could just go away. Now, I don't know how you would feel, but I would imagine that Jeremiah was down in the bottom of that pit, sunk down to maybe his knees or his waist in mud. We don't know how far, but the Bible tells us that it was only mud down in there. And I would imagine that he started to get a little discouraged. Well, this is great, God. Fantastic. You give me the word, I go preach it, I'm in the bottom of a well. And I got to thinking about that, and I got to thinking about my own pit experiences. The times when I have felt like that I was in a cistern or I was in a well. I don't know how many people here would say that you have ever been in a place where you felt like everybody had forgotten you. Maybe you're in a place right now where you feel like that everybody has forgotten you. It's a a dark place, a place where you felt abandoned, a place that you felt like that no one was there for you. Have you ever needed someone and didn't know where to turn? Like you were in the bottom of a pit. All of us in this room understand what that's like because before Jesus, you were in a pit. You you didn't even know how dark it was until God began to shine light in your heart and you found out how dark your heart really was. And I came this morning to tell you that many people around the world are in that same kind of pit like you and I were in. I'm going to tell you some things this morning in just a brief amount of time. And I'm not telling you this to, to break your heart. I'm not telling you any of these things to try to make you cry. I'm telling you these things because it's time to take action. It's time for us to actually do something about it. In India, there's a river called the Ganja River and mothers will take their newborn babies and they'll wade out chest deep into the Ganja River. and They'll hold their babies up high over their heads and they will throw their babies into this river sacrificing their children, their newborn children to a God who doesn't exist. Why would they do that? Because without Jesus, there's no hope. Because without Jesus, it's only darkness. Because without Jesus, it's only a pit, a well, a cold place, a place you can't get out of without Jesus. Did you know that in China, because the government has set in place that families can only have so many babies that at home right now, their women are performing at-home abortions on themselves. Why would they do that? Why would a mother ever do that? Just because the government said, because without Jesus, it's only darkness. And without Jesus, there's no hope. Did you know that in in Indonesia, in Indonesia, there's six-year-old little girls that are being sold into prostitution by their families. That their families are selling their own children into prostitution. Why? Why would they do that? Because without Jesus, there's no hope. 
there's only darkness. Did you know that in Africa, people are starving to death. There's disease that leaves millions orphaned or widowed every day. Why? Because without Jesus, there's no hope. There's only darkness. Are you understanding what I'm saying today? That we have got to take the light of the gospel and begin to send it around the world like we never have before. We've got to dislodge ourselves from our comfortable thinking. Come on, Jesus, somebody. Are you with me? People need Jesus around the world. They're in a pit. They're in the cistern. They're in a well. They're in places that they can't get out of. 1994, Rwanda was in that place. In 1994, there were two tribes of people, the Hutus and the Tutsi. And the Hutu began to move through the country, hopped up on weed and alcohol and armed with machetes. And people that convinced them that the Tutsi had been oppressing them. And so they began to move through the country trying to exterminate every Tutsi that they could find. Some of you remember this. Some of you don't. Some of you that you don't, you say, well, I don't remember when this happened. Let me just jog your memory. It was in 1994. What you and I were doing, we were watching the O.J. Simpson trial. That's exactly the same time that after 100 days, over 800,000 people had been murdered under the hands of a machete and angry mobs. And here's the sad thing. The sad thing is that the Rwandan people, the Tutsi people, cried out. They cried out to the to the international community. They cried out to the UN. They were down in the bottom of that pit yelling up and saying, please, somebody, come and help us. And the international community turned their backs on them and just let them murder each other. Why didn't we go help them? I don't even know. Finally, finally, relief came as another set of Rwandans that had been held up up in the Congo jungle saw that their people were being oppressed and they formed an army and began to move through Rwanda and save the country. That guy's the president of Rwanda today. His name's Paul Kagame. Why didn't we go? Why didn't we help? Listen, like Jeremiah, like the people in Indonesia, like the people in China, the people of Rwanda were waiting for someone. They were waiting for anyone to come to their rescue. They were waiting for somebody to be an advocate for them. You know what advocate means? The dictionary says that an advocate is someone who pleads on behalf of another. Around the world, people that are without Jesus and are in darkness are waiting and desperately trying to find someone who will plead on their behalf. Plead to who? Plead with people that can do something about their suffering. Plead with someone. They don't, they're pleading to gods that they don't even know. While at the same time, Jesus is trying to reach out to them. But here's the important part. He uses you and I to do it. You see, we have the gospel We have the ability to advocate for those who can't speak for themselves. That's why my wife and I formed Advocates for Africa. We're not just going around and preaching about Jesus. We're going around and preaching about the people that need Jesus. 
And we're trying to raise up people that understand that we all are advocates. You can be an advocate for Africa. You can be an advocate for Indonesia or China or Bangladesh or anywhere. But you've got to advocate for the lost, for people that don't know Christ. We're all advocates. Or we're called to be. Anyway. Jeremiah. Jeremiah's advocate came in the form of a man named Obed-Melech. You read on in chapter 38, verse 7, it says, But Obimelech, a Cushite, an official in the royal palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. He heard about somebody in the pit. And while the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate, Obed-Melech went out of the palace. He went out of the palace. And he said to him, My lord, the king, these men have acted wickedly in all that they have done. Jeremiah the prophet, they have thrown him into a cistern where he will starve to death when there's no longer any bread in the city. I love Obimelech, but I'm going to tell you something. Obimelech was not a likely candidate to be an advocate. Obimelech was a Cushite from Cush, which is modern-day Ethiopia. He was a slave. He was kind of a high-ranking slave. He was like a house boy that took care of all the house. He probably didn't get paid for it except for maybe food and shelter. But Obimelech had an ear with the king. But he knew, as any slave would know, that when he goes to the king, the king could have got upset with him and just replaced him with somebody else. And so Obimelech really was not the likely candidate to go and help. You know what I've noticed? I've noticed that those who have been in a pit before, think about Obimelech. He'd probably been in a, a pit or two himself. Think about how did he become a slave? Obimelech probably was sitting in his village one day in Ethiopia just minding his own business, and people came and brought into slavery all those people. Obimelech, I love Obimelech. Obimelech was probably a guy that had been in a pit or two himself. And when you've been in a pit or two yourself, you, more than anybody else, know how to help people get out of that pit. Am I right? You know what I'm talking about. They, you see, you that have been in a pit like I have, you know the difference. You know the difference that it makes when you will make a sacrifice to help those people get out of that pit. Like Obimelech, think about it. One of the great things about Abimelech is that he was willing to get out of the palace. But the palace is comfortable, isn't it? You know what I'm saying? Air conditioning is comfortable. Say, cushy seat is comfortable. Starbucks, come on. That's like of God. I love Starbucks. Coffee, right? I love comfort. Our flesh loves comfort. We like it to be nice in here. If it was 100 degrees in here, all of you would be fanning and looking at Pastor Billy like, really? Turn some air on up in here. We like our comfort. But what I think is I think that it's time for us to be like Obimelech and get out of the palace just a little bit. I think that it's time for us to start making a little bit of sacrifices to our comfort like Obimelech did. See, he sacrificed his comfort. He sacrificed his safety. He sacrificed his priorities. He was willing to get out of the palace. And before you say, oh, Jared, that's not me, man. We make a sacrifice. Let me just read some statistics to you real quickly. Did you know that the average American will spend $241 a year on dog food? $40 a year on Halloween? 
The video game industry is $11.6 billion industry. $420 you and I will pay for cable television this year. $38 billion industry in the lottery. Teeth whitening. $600 million. $14 a month on Starbucks. But I know other people that probably spend way more than that. I'm probably one of them. We'll spend $49.76 a year on Christmas decorations, but I know people that spend more than that. And are you ready for this? Last year in America, evangelical Christians who have said that they love Jesus and that they are followers of Christ gave a whopping $6.58 to missions for the year. God help us. God help us to get out of the palace. God help us to see that our sacrifices that we make, A, may not really even be sacrifices. They may just be a shift of priorities. But that the, the, prior, the, the sacrifices that we do make, they matter. They matter. See, when you give up a, a Starbucks or two throughout the month so that you can make sure that your church missions program continues to operate, I know your pastor, and I know that he has a heart for the lost. I know that, that your missions program sends money to missionaries like me so that we can stand in villages in front of people that you'll never meet and declare the gospel of Jesus to them. They'll give their lives to Jesus, and you'll be standing in heaven one day, like Revelation tells us, and there'll be a multitude upon a multitude of people that will be worshiping and singing praises to the Lamb of God who was sacrificed for you and I. And you'll look over, and there'll be a Rwandan Hutu, or Rwandan Tutsi sitting there with his arms raised up like this, and he'll look over, and you'll know each other, and he'll say, hey, thanks for sending that money and that white boy from Oklahoma to Rwanda because he gave, he preached and he told me about Jesus. You see, our sacrifices matter. Our sacrifices matter. we got to get out of the palace. Listen, your sacrifices matter for, for people like our friend Gertrude. Gertrude was a widow lady that we met in Rwanda. And she made her living by by going around and making these baskets. You can see one of the baskets that she probably made out there on our table. She made these baskets. She washed people's clothes. She did whatever she could. See, she was a widow because her entire family was murdered during the genocide. She was still, years later, trying to pick up the pieces of how to provide for herself. Your sacrifices matter for people like Gertrude. Your sacrifices matter for people like Omar. Omar was our guard in Rwanda. He guarded our house when we were gone and while we were sleeping at night, and he was a Muslim. And I had so many conversations with Omar trying to convince him that Jesus was the real answer. And these conversations would go like this. I believe that Jesus was a prophet. I said, good, he was. And I believe that Jesus was a good man. And I would say, good, he is. He said, but I don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. 
And I said, why don't you believe that? And he would say, because Muhammad came after Jesus. And that was where the conversation would go every time. And so my wife and I, what we did, we just made a point to always just love on Omar. Just love. He was the most dedicated, hardest working guard we had in Rwanda. I mean, a good man. During the genocide, he was just a small boy. And he watched as his family was brutally butchered right in front of him. And to escape, he, he ran up into the jungles. And he ran all night long and he came to a church. Maybe like this. He came to a church, probably not just like this, more like mud walls. But he came to a church. And he beat on the door. The genocide was sweeping across the country. And he, he was beating on the door and there were people packed inside. And, and he was just a small boy. And there was standing room only on the inside of the church. And they opened the door just a little bit. And they looked outside. And here was this boy about 9 or 10 years old. And he said, let me in. Let me in. They're, they're after me. And they turned him away because the church was full. God help us when we start thinking that the church is so full because our American church is full. Listen, the church isn't full. There's two billion people on the planet who have never even heard the name of Christ, not even one time. I'm not talking about people that just, oh, they've heard it and they've rejected it. I'm talking about two people, two million people across the continent of Africa and in India and Indonesia and China that have never once heard the name above all names. Your sacrifices, they matter to people like Omar. They matter. They matter to the little boy. The little boy that, that concreted my call to Africa. I was in Ethiopia. It was my first trip to Africa. We were preaching a crusade in a village called Hosanna. And we stood on that stage and I watched... As people, I learned, had walked for five and six days to come hear the message of the gospel. The first night, there was about 75,000 people. The second night, there was about 150,000 people. On the last night of the crusade, the crowd went so deep and spanned so far wide this enormous field that the estimates were at 275,000 people had come to hear the gospel message. I couldn't help but think, if there's this many people that will walk for so many days to hear the gospel, there's surely more people that need Jesus. One of those days, while we were waiting for the crusade to start that night, we went into the village and we began to feed some of the children that were orphans. And as they filed in, we were handing out food and I was standing about right here. They had the food all prepared behind me and the kids began to come forward and we were handing out food. And as I was handing out the food, a little boy came into the back and he just stood there wrapped in rags and blankets, all dirty, nasty, feet was swollen, no shoes on. His feet were so swollen and muddy that they, you could see on the sides where they had been cracked open and just bleeding. His hands were swollen. He was losing his hair. I learned later these are all symptoms and signs of malnutrition. He had one arm or one hand that was pulled in like this and swollen. His hand was swollen so big he couldn't move his fingers. 
And as he walked toward me, I just remember thinking, Jesus, what are you doing to me? What are you doing? And he got closer and closer, and I took that plate of food, and I handed it to that little boy. And he took that one good arm, and he put up underneath it. And he went over there where your pastor's sitting right now, and he sat down, and he began to try to hold it with his bad arm and eat with the other, and I, I couldn't take it. I went over and just helped him. I just helped him. You know, hold his plate while he ate. It messed me up. For the rest of the trip, I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I just wanted to go home. You see, I was mad at God. I said, God, I didn't come to Africa to see this. I came to see the big crowds preach gospel. And God began to show me that that was the gospel. That little boy with no food, that's the gospel. I was so mad. I was so mad at God. On the airplane ride home, I had my journal open, and I'm just writing all this down, and I'm just saying, God, I'm going to be transparent here with you like you can be any other thing with God. And I just said, I'm mad. I don't understand how you can let little boys and girls on this planet go to bed with no food. With no mamas and no daddies. I don't understand. God, how you could let this happen? I put my pen and I shut my I shut that journal and I just began to look out of the window and I just began to cry. And I I couldn't I couldn't stop it. I just cried and cried until I I mean I couldn't even cry no more. And then I heard God. I heard God. You know, I, I said, God, why would you let this happen? And then I heard God say in my heart, why would you? Why would you? You see, there's enough food on the planet to go around for everybody. It just, sometimes it's sitting in our bank account. See, there's enough, there's enough love of Jesus to go around for everybody. There's enough grace to go around for everybody. There's enough shelter to go around for everybody. There's enough clothes to go around for everybody. It's just we have to realize that we got to get out of the palace and make the sacrifice because our sacrifices matter. Do you understand what I'm saying? That little boy in Hosanna, Ethiopia. I've got a picture of him right out there. Stop at the table when you leave and you look. I'll show you the picture of the little boy. You can see the crowds of that crusade. It's time to be advocates. It's time to advocate for those who can't speak for themselves and to share Christ with the nations. And so I'm going to show you a video, and I want to pray for you. But I want you to know that my wife and I are going to go, and we're going to share the gospel with as many people as we can, and we're going to help little boys and little girls in Africa as most we can. And we're going to go into refugee camps, and we're going to go into places that are dangerous, and we're willing to do it because Jesus did that for us. The sacrifice is worth it. On this video, you're going to see us preaching in the prisons of Rwanda. We partner with a friend of mine who has a ministry that he sets up Bible schools in the prisons. That's what he does. So that's what you're going to see. But I want to ask you a question before you watch this video. These people that I explained or that I talked about it, Gertrude and Omar and this little boy in Ethiopia, we have to answer the question of, is our sacrifice worth it? 
Is that little boy worth a Starbucks or two? Is that little boy worth one less meal out a week, one less McDonald's run? Is he worth it? I think you and I both know the answer. I think, it's, I think he's worth it. I think Gertrude is worth it. I think people like Omar that are desperately seeking for the truth, that they're worth it. So when you give to your missions program at this church, I want you to remember this little boy that I told you about because there's little boys like him all over the world. And every single penny that you give to missions sends a missionary like me to put food on the plate of little boys like that. Will you bow your head with me? Father, I pray that this message that you have laid on my heart, God, will resonate in the hearts of these people. God, never let us forget that our sacrifices matter. Lord, Jeremiah was in that pit, and you said, Obed-Melech, he gathered up men from all over as advocates to go with him. And they pulled Jeremiah out of that well. And Lord, we want to stand as a church today, the church of America, and we want to pull people out of darkness. We need your help. Give us boldness to make the sacrifices that we need to make. Lord, let us take this message that we know. Let us take the Jesus that loves us to the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have enjoyed and been encouraged by this message. We would love for you to join us at the river on Sunday mornings at 9.45 for Sunday school and at 10.30 for morning worship. We also provide our midweek service for all ages on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. If you would like to support the various ministries at the river, please go to our giving tab. We would love for you to visit us at 1110 South Preston Street, Burkrenet, Texas. And as always, we encourage you to come experience life with us at the river. Till I found myself face down on your shore. Say, come to the